The New Testament reading is from Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again, everyone. It's great to be with you. And uh, we have been going through a series on our core values. And we did five weeks, one each for the core values. And these are things that we don't want to just print up in the bulletin and then leave behind or just find dormant on the website and no one's referred to it or thought about it for a year. So we're revisiting that, that uh, the core values, in two sort of recap sermons. And then we're also kicking off um, what may be a little bit more of a controversial sermon next week that I'm going to kind of tee up this week. So we're starting Q&A down here, so you don't have to agree with everything I say this morning. Uh, in fact, I expect that not everyone will, um, but that's why we're going to have Uh, Not just a monologue, but we're going to have a dialogue down here after the service. And so I invite you to participate in that. So let me pray for us as we begin talking about uh, creating a culture that's a fellowship of difference. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us and that you would speak through me, despite my limitations and my brokenness and in many ways my unfitness for the task uh, before us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and be among us and cause us to think your thoughts after you. Lord, I pray that we would open ourselves up to your word and to your instruction wherever we're coming from. If this is our first time in church or the first time in a long time, and we're kind of surprised that we find ourselves in the doors of a church this morning, I pray that you would meet us there and that you would comfort us and nurture us and answer our questions and draw us into fellowship with you. And if this is our regular place on Sunday morning, if we've heard this passage a thousand times, I pray that you would give us something new to think about, and not just to think about, but to live out. And I pray that we as a congregation would truly embody the principles that are set apart and set out in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I preached on this text just two years ago, and normally I don't preach on a text again that quickly because the Bible's a big book and there's too many things to preach on. Um, So why two years later we're looking at the same passage? Well, one, it's a great passage, and it's a very principle, um, a key principle of being a part of the family of God, and one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament, and it's a summary of the kind of community that we aspire to be and are working on becoming here at InTown. Um, but secondly, we, two years ago, were in a denominational context that did not allow me to preach in the way that I thought we should preach this text. And so I want to revisit it because as we talked two years ago, we talked about sort of the up here, the spiritual principles and the aspects of justification but we did not talk about sort of the implications of the down here, the ecclesial aspects of what the implications of this passage are. 
And if you're still with us, the leaders and I and then the congregation confirmed that that was not a healthy dynamic for us to be in, for me to not be able to preach my conscience um, based upon uh, what I see in the text and what I believe the Bible teaches. And so we made a move to a denominational context that allows diversity of practice and a view based upon the question of women in ministry. And so my presumption is that not everyone will agree with where I have landed on this, but that's okay because this isn't a hierarchical church where you have to believe everything that the pastor believes, and you shouldn't (laughs) because I'm human. But I want to tell you some of what I was thinking back then and some of what I, I wanted to say. Now, I want to qualify that a bit because what I am talking about, as I said, is the equality of men and women, not just in theory not just in spiritual principle, but in actual practice in the life of the church, and that I believe that men and women should share equally in the gifts of leading and teaching and preaching. However, I'm not giving a full exegetical defense of this position this morning. That's next week. So if you're interested, uh, you'll have to come back for part two. Um, But this does set the stage. It does tee it up. And I want to say that it's important to say up front that no one who makes the argument for the full participation of women in the leadership of the church, what is generally called the egalitarian position, no one argues that men and women are essentially the same and essentially interchangeable. There's a complementarian ideal ideal without hierarchy. Now, I heard on NPR a, a pretty interesting story this week about uh, the study that they had done in, not NPR, but a group of scientists in Siberia of how woolly mammoths tended to die out in that area of the earth. And that was actually the, the last place that woolly mammoths um, survived. And it was interesting because one of the things that they found were that male mammoths were much more likely to die by accident. So if a mammoth didn't live to full age, it was most likely that the males didn't live to full age because they were doing something stupid and died in the process. Is anyone surprised by that? I'm not. It's a wonder that there are any males left of any species because we're all doing (laughs) reckless and dumb stuff and uh, not being very careful. So why would God put us in charge of his church? So that's the argument for women in leadership based upon anecdotal evidence from various species. But I want to give you more than that, of course. I want to give you a a scriptural argument because, of course, we can see empirically that men and women are created differently, and we're not trying to erase those differences to where we're all the same, but we're creating a system of complementarian practice without hierarchy. The, ar- the argument has to be made that difference, that complementarity, necessarily implies hierarchy, that one gender is made for leadership and the other gender is created for basically service and support. And here, if you're paying attention, Paul makes this sweeping, categorical, unqualified statement that seems to eradicate any hierarchical framework of gender in the church. He seems to be saying exactly the opposite of what many people have made him to say in some of his other letters. So we need to think about that. 
But in the new creation, that is in the new covenant, in God's people in the days of Jesus, he says there is no male or female. Now, keep in mind here that these readers in Galatia didn't have the letter to 1 Timothy. That's sort of the essential clobber text for not allowing women in ministry is 1 Timothy 2, 12 and following. Well, they didn't have that letter. That letter wasn't written for a decade or two later, and even if it was contemporaneous, it wouldn't have circulated that quickly. So this letter, perhaps one of Paul's earliest letter, has this sweeping statement And so if Paul was wanting to universally limit the role of women in the church, his strategy is kind of suspect because he is saying this to Galatia and only giving the limitation clause to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. And he's sending this letter to Galatia. So if they they don't have 1 Timothy 2, what are they going to think? They're going to think, and practice that male and female are equal in the sight of God and that we shouldn't divide up the church based upon gender. How could you read it any differently unless you were predisposed to interpret Galatians 3 through 1 Timothy 2, which they didn't have? So that's the start, just teeing up some of the more details as we look at 1 Timothy 2 next week. So uh, come back. In Christ, we have a new identity, for in Christ, you all are children of God through faith, all of you, male, female, children. Every Christian has a baseline identity, a foundational, fundamental identity of being a child of God. And there's one thing that's very important to notice is this word, children. If you're reading from the Greek New Testament, you would notice that the word translated children is sons. And this is because in ancient cultures, they use the masculine son, masculine words, to refer to mixed groups, even if they included men and women, which they always did when they were read in churches. And when we read a passage at Intown where the Greek word is obviously using brothers to denote the entire mixed congregation, we always use a translation that says brothers and sisters because we want to convey that in our language, that's the words that Paul would have used because he's referring to everyone. However, this children instead of sons is helpful, but when the ancient readers read sons, they would have clued into something that was very important because in most ancient cultures, daughters couldn't inherit property, but a son could. And therefore, a son had a legal status that was not given to women. And he, instead of his sister, even if she was born first, would have inherited everything. And the, the sister would be dependent upon her brother, unless she was married, to take care of her based upon the father's property and estate. Now, Paul is using this as an illustration to say this is not how things work in the family of God. The gospel says we are all sons of God in Christ, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, have the status of the firstborn male heir. This is incredibly subversive and incredibly revolutionary in that culture. 
because they always assign this hierarchical status based upon gender. And Paul here says a woman is not adopted because of her husband's status. She's not taken care of because of her brother's status, but because God loves her personally and knows her name. And he grants her equal status with men. If you heard this in the patriarchal society that existed in those days, you would have been uncomfortable. Wait a minute, Paul. Are you saying that I'm equal with my slave and that he's equal to me? Are you saying that the way that we've done things, our societal uh, infrastructure for thousands of years is now being upended? Is that what you're saying, Paul? This rabbi Jewish male is saying this. This was uncomfortable. If your identity was a female or a slave or a Gentile or immoral or disabled, you were absolutely defined by those things, and you could not get out from under that label. Those were your identity. Now, even the most traditional among us probably think that's unfair, right? That's regressive. But don't we often use labels in much the same way to define each other and define ourselves? Don't we categorize people based upon something relatively superficial about them? Rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, or Democrat, Republican, whichever way your thumb wants to go. Conservative, liberal, native, immigrant, immigrant, fat, thin. These are highly powerful and often toxic labels that we use to diminish and to belittle and to control other people. And partially we do it because we do it to ourselves, and therefore we treat others in the way that we treat ourselves. We label ourselves. What is your story? What experience, what success or failure labels you that you are living out of this morning? Likely multiple things, right? Maybe you haven't had quite the success that your firstborn sibling has, and so you are the runner-up. That's how you think of yourself, and that's how you envision your family thinking of you. Maybe you've suffered greatly with depression or anxiety or addiction or OCD or something, and you just feel broken inside and unable to be put back together. Or alternatively, You were the smart one. You were the successful one. You got into the college that your sibling or your friends didn't get into. You're the charismatic one, and you're constantly trying to keep those plates spinning. That's your identity. You're invested in it. Well, Paul says something very different about you. He says that however you've been labeled in the past, that you are now his beloved child with the rights that Jesus has. That is your baseline, fundamental, foundational identity, that you are a child, a beloved child of God. Now, it also means that if you are a child, you're also part of a family. And in Christ, we belong to a new family 27 and through 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all, what, one in Christ. 
no matter what else is true of you, what is most true of you is that you belong eternally to the family of God. That is why this is sort of a summary sermon for our core values. It's because we're trying to create and foster a community of people who find their deepest, most foundational identity in their relationship with Jesus and his community and his family. Christina Cleveland is a researcher who writes about the sociology of communities, primarily about churches, and she says, the act of adopting a common identity that supersedes, notice that word supersedes, does not eliminate your other identities. It doesn't, but it changes them. It supersedes all other identities. is a daunting and even painful task. But research shows that it is the key to true unity. It is consistent with Jesus' teachings that the household of God is to take precedence over all other households. It's not really how we think about church, is it? That it is our primary household. And I wanted to get that across to Zeeland and her parents this morning. Zeeland one day hopefully will get across to her, but she wasn't really listening to me. But I want her parents to understand that this is Zeeland's primary community. This is where she meets with God and finds her most meaningful and eternal identity. But it's a challenge because we like the idea of diversity, I think, but what Martin Luther King said about 11 o'clock on Sunday morning being the most segregated time in America is still true. And it's not just in the South. Portland is an astoundingly segregated city. And most of the church, even in this very progressive city, lives in homogeneous communities that all think the same and look the same and dress the same and earn roughly the same income. And they're homogeneous based upon race race and ethnicity, of course, but it's also based upon the lines of tribal theological loyalties where we identify our primary family, based upon not the gospel and our identity in Jesus, but upon second and third order doctrines. That's how we live. That's the communities that we find most important. And what we want to do at InTown is to invert that. Jesus gives us a new identity, a primary identity, and it is belonging to his family. And that supersedes all of our other identities. That supersedes all of our other ideological and political positions and exegetical positions that we think are so important. This is what's at the center. It is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the things that have always been central to Christianity. That is where the identity of in town is meant to be formed. And when you see this, they become we, and them becomes us. We're not able to label and categorize and diminish and exclude people based upon tribal differences, based upon ideological differences. We begin to engage in that very difficult process of loosening over time our grip of the identities that we've idolized and clung to for far too long that have led to the balkanization and the disunity in the church. And this is a a jarring process, and it will wreak havoc upon our comfortable, homogeneous existence. And this is why most people choose to leave a church or most people choose to form a new denomination. 
because we prefer homogeneity over heterogeneity. We're looking for communities to reinforce our lesser and subsidiary identities, not challenge it. To reinforce hierarchy of views, not equality of people. So in choosing a community that feels comfortable, I want to submit to you that we're also limiting our own development and growth, and we're hindering the mission of the church because we're not a fellowship of difference as the New Testament describes and, in fact, requires of churches, but we're a fellowship of sames. And we want to push against that as much as we can at InTown. We want to be a safe community, but not a comfortable one. A safe community, but not a comfortable one. We're a a safe place for you to belong, for you to find healing, for you to be in process, for you to not have it all figured out, and for you not to have it all together, for you not to have everyone have a perfectly charming, delightful personality. It's impossible to ask. Some people are more difficult to get along with for individuals than others. But we want it to be a safe place for all people. We want it to be a place where you actually find healing from being labeled and diminished by labels and also labeling other people. But we want to be a safe place, but not necessarily a comfortable place. Because Jesus meets you wherever you are, but he never leaves you there. And so we say a lot here at InTown that change is not a condition for his welcome, but it's always a consequence of knowing him. Change is not a, con- not a condition for Jesus' welcome, but it's always a consequence of knowing him. He invites you, because you're part of his family, into a community of mission and a fellowship of difference, and that's always uncomfortable. The Apostle Peter found Jesus to be very safe, but very uncomfortable. And I almost feel sorry for the guy when you read the Gospels. You're like, come on, Peter, say the right thing, do the right thing. And he never does. He's always the example of what not to say, not to do. And Jesus always embraces him nonetheless. But we read in Acts 9, 10, 11 of his encounter, this remarkable encounter with Cornelius, where Peter was asked to loosen his grip on his cultural identity that had 1,500 years of practice and his exclusionary theology and to travel to the house of this religious outsider and call him brother. Peter, the Jewish apostle, friend of Jesus, and Cornelius, the Roman oppressive centurion, are now in one family. Their differences still are there, but their identities have been superseded by their identity as brother in Christ. Family is something we all want. But what we want from our families is often far beyond what they actually provide for us. Even the best families are somewhat defective, and they leave us with only a taste of what we really want, a safe place to belong. Lasting acceptance, unconditional love. That's what we're looking for in our families. And oftentimes we get a good bit of that. We get powerful ideas 
of love and reassurance, but we also get some of our most significant wounds and hurts from our family. What Paul is saying is that being a child of God places us in a new family, and this new family, the church, struggles with some of the things that our natural families struggle with, competition, envy, division, self-promotion, labeling. All of this stuff exists, and we need to name it, and we need to call it out. But though this new family struggles with some of these same things, it's meant to be an ideal expression of everything that we long for our natural families to be. Because if you're not in that family, you not only belong to God, but to each other. I think I said that a little bit wrong, but we are all one in Christ in this family. And it means that two people who are Christians have more in common with each other than people of their own genders, their own class, their own social status, their own race, their own sexuality. They have more in common with each other because of their foundational, fundamental identity in Jesus. And so it means that you are a Christian before you're any race or any nationality or any title or any success or any failure. It's more fundamental. And it means that all of the barriers that separate people in the world into warring factions, they come down in Christ Jesus. And the church is to be the place where that is acted out, that reality, that up here is acted out down here, imperfectly, but in a growing sense of who Jesus is and what he has done by placing you in his family and giving you equal status. The privileges that we get in the gospel are so powerful that they surpass the greatest earthly merit or inherited advantages. Everything that we would long to put our identity on, our great achievements, our family name, our inherited status, those things are diminished because of how powerful the status is of child of God. If you are a Christian, as I said to the Crawfords, you are Abraham's seed, and you are heirs of the promise. And that means that none of us are strays any longer. None of us are misfits. None of us are outsiders. None of us are orphans. None of us are abandoned. None of us are unwanted. There's no one in this room that is unwanted. Though you are a broken person, though you are a sinner, though in many ways you have failed and will fail again, that's not No longer is that your primary identity. But you are a child of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If that's your story, if that's your identity, if that's where you place your hope, then you have been placed in a new family with eternal status. You are his son or daughter. None of us get in because of our accomplishments, and none of our failures and demerits can keep us out. You get in because of the promises of God, and they are yours for the taking. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these truths would sink in, that they would sink in today and this week, and that we would find ourselves contemplating our status as your children, 
as we go about our days, as we go about our business. I pray that you would distract us into thinking about this passage again. And as we think about it for ourselves, I pray that we would think about it for the person that we're angry at, the person that we're in conflict with, the person that we disagree with, the person that we can't believe they think this or that. I pray that we would consider this status, this gift as theirs as well. And so, Father, I pray that you would make that ideal image to be more and more true here at InTown, that we would practice this, that we would be a fellowship of difference, that we could find the person that's on the row next to us and be being different in so many ways, and yet be so glad to call them sister or brother because of the foundational identity that we share in the gospel. And I pray that that would be true in Jesus' name. Amen.